The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. Then bring near to you Aaron and your brother, his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Gary. Before we get into the passage this morning, I'd love to pray for us. I feel... um, yeah, I feel just personally, again, I've been talking about this a lot over the past few weeks, how easy it is to continue to live throughout this life, aware that God is with us, because Jesus actually promised that before he ascended to heaven. He told his followers that he's with us always, but I find myself really often kind of living life as if he's not. I'm living this life, kind of forgetting about the actual presence of Jesus right here with us. And so I just want to pause, give us a moment to kind of Even in silence, uh, just acknowledge the presence of God and then ask him uh, this evening to speak to us, to bring transformation into our lives, even as we just sang, that he would break every chain, the chains that kind of keep us away from walking with him and reflecting his glory in the world. So let's take a moment, calm our hearts before the presence of God, and then ask him to work. Um, Jesus, even now, as we calm our hearts, would you, by the power of your spirit, awaken us to your presence with us tonight. And we're praying that you would, even as we sang, that you would walk among us, that you would tend to us like someone taking care of sheep, like tending a flock of sheep or like a priest tending to just the the fire in the temple that's supposed to radiate your glory. Some of us need to be refueled. Some of us need to be pruned. Some of us need to be um, drawn back into your love. Uh, Some people in this room have never known the reality of your presence, have never been truly reconciled to you relationally. Um, Maybe even people that have been around religious activity, even uh, Christian religious activity, but have never truly known you and known your love. Would you tonight... Jesus, tend to us personally and corporately to help us to be a people that embrace this beautiful calling to be your priests in this world, representatives of your glory in this world. And so we pray for your help. In Christ's name, amen. Um, this, uh, this past week, I was with a group of pastors 
in um, Burbank, California. Burbank, California. If you know Burbank, it's basically, it is the kind of Hollywood of California. You're like, oh, that sounds kind of fun. Uh, it, it was a good time, but I always, always tell people, I, I get together with this group of pastors periodically. We, we try to encourage each other. Uh, we try to kind of spend time praying for each other, helping each other think about what it means to shepherd in the different cities that we're in. We kind of rotate to different churches in the past few times we've got together. It's in Las Vegas, which is just less exciting to tell people as a pastor, like, yeah, I got together with some friends in Las Vegas. You're like, wait, what are your pastors doing in Las Vegas? Um, Anyway, so Burbank, uh, Burbank is less weird than Las Vegas. Um, but we get together there, and, uh, and where we are going, um, there's a friend of mine who's a pastor at a church uh, called Redeemer Burbank, and it sits directly across the street from the Disney Corporation, Disney Studios. And Disney, if you know Disney, Disney owns like everything. They own Marvel, they own ABC, they own kind of Pixar, they own all of these different kind of companies and are producing so much of what we see on TV these days. But it was interesting, um, as we went uh, to this friend's church, again, a group of us as pastors, he's only been there for less than a year. And so he was just kind of showing us uh, the church and the, kind of talking about the community that had been really stewarding this, this church, this presence in kind of essentially right in the heart of Hollywood, California, stewarding this presence really faithfully, a really kind of uh, small church. But they had a, a huge building. It was actually three buildings that was built in the 60s. And it was, it was interesting as we were kind of walking between these buildings and he was, they're literally across the street from Disney Studios. The entrance, the big entrance is right there. And, uh, and he showed us this one building. And as he was showing us the building, he said, hey, notice on the third floor of this building, it was maybe a four or five story building. He said, notice on the third floor, they have these mirrored windows, right? Like uh, it's one way windows on the third floor only. He said, that's the Marvel floor. That's where all the Marvel movies are made and produced. And, uh, and he said they put mirrored windows on that story because people have been flying drones around, like trying to find out secrets of like the next Marvel movies. And you're like, man, this is so fascinating. And so we're just watching and you're hearing and thinking about all the things that are happening um, in this industry, in these kind of, in this epic kind of huge empire that is Disney. And uh, again, ABC, they own ABC. Um, also, Warner Brother uh, Studios is right down the street. And he said the studios have been contacting the church for decades, asking and offering uh, to purchase the property of this church. It's really two blocks worth of property that they have. It's pretty crazy. They own some parking lots. And uh, he's like, but the church was just faithful, saying we want to be a light to the glory of God right here at the kind of front gate of Disney Studios and all these kind of like cultural influencers. And, uh, and we're like, man, that's crazy. Like, how much were they even offering you guys for the building? And he's like, they've offered $20 million. And we're like, $20 million. Like, do you have to be right here? <laughs> do you have to be like right, right here? Uh, there's not another place that you could be. $20 million, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. Um, but it's interesting because we as we were thinking about this reality, you have this kind of this beautiful, shiny empire of Disney Studios. And across the street, you have this rundown old church building with these kind of rooms that haven't been kept well. Just the property has been like maintained. And then there's been a group of people, a small kind of beleaguered group of people that have worshipped faithfully there for uh, you know, the better part of the past 70 years. And it just struck me in this moment where it's, as Christians, we tend to think of the world like that. Like the world is this kind of huge, shiny empire, and we feel like this little beleaguered group of people that like, what does it mean to be a Christian in the midst of this world? And you can feel insecurity about being a Christian. You can feel apologetic about being a Christian. You can feel like, how do I fit in this world where this, where this like little kind of this small group of people kind of modestly kind of like trying to stay here while this huge empire is growing and moving and rolling 
And it, just, it hit me as we were talking about that and as I was processing later and just praying about, praying for this church and praying about it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, some of you are familiar with Stranger Things, anybody? Stranger Things, a couple nods, a few nods. Uh, that means I have to explain it, which is going to be complicated. Um, anyway, it's a weird movie that's kind of creepy and has kids in it. So um, that's my explanation of Stranger Things. Uh, but there's a, a point in Stranger Things where they have this uh, access and there's kind of these moments where they go into something that's called the upside down. And it's basically like the inverse of reality. It's like reality is here. And then there's this like upside down version of the same reality. But instead of it being like things that are well kept and kind of like polished and happy, it's just like dark. And there's like ash floating around. And it's just kind of this decrepit, decaying, dark place. And it just, it hit me in that moment where you feel this kind of huge, shiny empire that feels like it's this like glorious Disney kind of like, this kind of representation of our secular age. And then you have this like humble church. And what if in God's eyes, what if in God's view of the world, it's the opposite? Um, What if the the world around us that can feel intimidating and as secularism continues to kind of barrel through society, um, what if it is a darker experience? What if instead of approaching it as a beleaguered group of people, what if we understood that even in our kind of humble state, even in our modest existence in this world, that God has created us to be this light of his glory, this weighty, beautiful, radiant, glorious presence, shining a light into the darkness of the culture around us. And rather than kind of like um, insecurely, like feeling intimidated by the kind of like the kind of steamroller of secularism, what if we stood with the sense of confidence that God has called us into this place to bear witness to the weight of his glory in this world by the way we live, by the way we relate, by the way we as people that have been given access to the presence of God can stand with joy and with love and with humility and with strength and stability uh, in the midst of this dark world. And it's that kind of concept, it's that concept that stands at the heart of what the priesthood in the Old Testament is all about. Um, That a priest in Old Testament terms and in most religions throughout history, priests were people that were given access to the presence of God. Kind of a group of people set apart or sanctified or made holy is the Bible-y word. They kind of set apart for this function to be able to draw near to the presence of God. And as those who had drawn near to the presence of God to then represent that presence to God and of God in the world around them. And what we find throughout the story of the Bible, as we look at the priests in kind of the beginning of these days of the, of the nation of Israel, that we as a community are called to be, it says this in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. That we don't come to a, a priest as a, as a church, we don't kind of understand the priesthood like you come to me and confess your sins to me and I'm the one that represents God to you and then can kind of mediate God's forgiveness towards you. We actually understand that the New Testament teaches that we are all priests. The kind of doctrinal turn is the priesthood of believers, that we as those who have trusted in Christ are given this role to function as priests. And so we're going to talk about tonight, uh, as we look at this passage here in Exodus 28, and it kind of lays the foundation for the, the role and the function of the priests in the Old Testament. What does that mean for us as a community of people that have been given this calling? And here's what we'll see tonight. Um, that as a community of priests, or as a kingdom of priests, as people that have been called to this task, That we have access to the presence of God and we have this sacred purpose to represent God's presence in the world. 
We've been given both access, this incredible privilege of access to the presence of God. And as those who have been granted access, we actually bear the weight and the glory and the beauty of that access as we go back into the world with Jesus, walking by his spirit and representing the weight of his glory in the world. So I'm going to kind of walk through a few movements uh, here this evening uh, in the passage or in the kind of supporting the passage around it. And we'll talk about why this matters for us today. Um, we're going to look at the priesthood in the Old Testament. We'll look at how it leads to Jesus and then what that means for us uh, today in our function in this world. Um, there's so much happening in this passage. In, in the 9 and the 11, I described a lot of it. And it was just a lot. So lucky for you, you're the 5. And I'm going to like cut some of that detailed description for you tonight and, uh, and draw out three observations. Uh, three observations about what's happening in, in Exodus 28. Let me give a little bit of context again. If you're newer to Park, uh, we've been walking through a series looking through the book of Exodus. We started back in January. Uh, we looked at 1 through 19, Exodus 1 through 19 in January this fall. We're kind of finishing up the book. And so what we've been seeing is that the people of God uh, were rescued from this oppressive slavery uh, to a kingdom called Egypt under the rulership of a, of a pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And in that kind of system, the people of God were kind of being crushed under these, what I've been calling, inescapable burdens, these pressures to, to do more and more and more for a kingdom that was crushing them. And we, we've said this, this was a historical kingdom, a, a real place and a real time and real history, and yet it is kind of archetypical, it is like an archetype of all kingdoms throughout all ages where we are trying as humanity to kind of forge our own way, to kind of create a sense of meaning and identity and peace and rest and paradise, and we're doing it all separated from the presence of God. And when we spend our energy trying to create love and trying to create meaning and trying to find value and trying to find acceptance and trying to to find forgiveness for the things we've done wrong. And when we're doing it on our own, by our own strength, it leads to a striving that crushes people. It crushes people. And we say that week after week because the, the huge kind of the good news of the gospel is that God, by his grace and because of his love, is redeeming people from that soul-crushing, life-destroying captivity and bringing us into the glory of his presence where there's freedom and there's liberation and there's joy and there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's life eternal in the presence of God. That's what Exodus is all about. And so what we've seen is God rescued them through the blood of a lamb with his mighty power. He brought them through the waters and he's brought them into his presence. They're at a mountain called Mount Sinai and God is meeting with the people saying, here's what it means to live in my presence. Here's what it means to be a part of my kingdom and to be liberated from these soul-crushing kingdoms that are destroying humanity. And I'm going to teach you what it means to be my people and to orient your life around my presence. And so last week we looked at the kind of instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which was essentially God's presence on earth, God's like heavenly presence, the place where the, the heavenly realm of God has come to meet earth, and it's a sacred space where God is dwelling among his people. And then now what we're looking at in chapter 28, which is right in the middle of the temple instructions, the tabernacle instructions, is this role of the priests who are given access to come into the tabernacle to approach and draw near to the presence of God. And it's going to use all this kind of language about their clothing. Really, chapter 28 is all about clothing. It's some like style magazine with like really cool materials and really skilled artisans. And it's like, you know, I don't know, Prada or something like that. Like some incredible like 
incredibly beautiful and talented work, but the meaning of everything that's happening in here isn't like be cool designs. We're kind of like, man, this is going to be the rave, you know, in, you know, 15th century BC. Like, this is going to be on all the magazines. Um, the whole design is to actually reflect something glorious, the glorious function, the glorious role of the priests. And so there's this line right there in chapter 28, and I want to read it again. There's this line um, in verse 2. It says, and you shall make holy garments. That means kind of unique, set-apart garments, distinct garments. For Aaron, your brother, and it says this, for glory and for beauty. For glory. This idea of the glory of these garments is they were to reflect like the, the weight of God's glory, his radiance, his significance, his presence that in the midst of a world that's full of kind of like shallow and trivial things something about the clothes themselves were to set these priests apart as there's something glorious about this role there's something weighty about this role there's something that has this richness and this thickness and this kind of substantive substantive nature about this role as, as priests and there's something beautiful about it there's something really beautiful and radiant about their presence and their role and their function. And so all of the garments were reflecting this glory and this beauty. And I just want to say out of the gate, the heart of what we're looking at tonight is what God has called us to. There is a glory and a beauty to what God has called us to in this world. A glory, a weight. There's a weight, a significance, and a beauty to what God has called us to. And, and for my own part, I'll just tell you that I, I think, often lose sight of that reality. And I settle into kind of like trivial, kind of like shallow, superficial understanding of my existence in this world and lose sight of the glory and the beauty of what God's called us to. If you think about, again, that picture of Redeemer Burbank, this, this small, modest church, there's a glory and a beauty to their role right here at the gates of, of Disney. And so um, it kind of begins to describe a lot of different pieces of clothing. Um, there's a thing called an ephod, which is kind of a torso garment, and it had these shoulder straps on it. Uh, on the shoulder straps, there are these onyx stones, which are these black stones embedded into it. The onyx stones would have engraved uh, on each of the stones six of the tribes of Israel on one stone, six of the tribes of Israel on another stone, representing this kind of function for the priests, that the priests were called to represent the people of God as they entered into the tabernacle. And so if Israel is now hundreds of thousands, if not potentially at this point, millions of people um, in the nation of Israel, they weren't all coming into the tabernacle. They weren't all given access into the tabernacle. It was the high priests and the priests that were ordained and consecrated and set apart to actually come into the presence of God on behalf of the people. As people who had turned from God's reign, turned from his love, turned from his, his rulership over them, there was a, an impurity and a brokenness and a sinfulness. And so the priests would kind of walk through all these rituals as priests, like being cleansed and washed and sanctified, going through these rituals of atonement to bring forgiveness and cleansing and purity so that they could come into the presence of God on behalf of all the people. So they represented the people of God in that age. And then there was this other kind of piece uh, to the kind of the ephod had this breast piece on it, which was essentially uh, kind of a square. And on the square it had 12 stones and 12 stones were these precious stones. And on each of the stones, a name of one of the tribes of Israel was engraved. 
And so they're wearing on their own chest this breast piece that, that shows not merely the fact that they're representing the people of God, but it actually shows even the kind of beauty and dignity of God's people. As we enter into his presence, we, we're not entering into his presence as those who have been kind of like, uh, that he's like, disappointed with and frustrated with and just um, kind of like constantly feeling like man we just like not we're not able to come into God's presence because we're just base people it's like no there's actually a glory to be being created in the image of God like I, I grew up learning uh, a lot and I'm really thankful for this about the reality of my sinfulness it's it's real actually like when you start thinking about Christianity the goal in Christianity is not to like man, but, but you're great. You're really great. Like, you're so good, and you're, you, you've tried so hard, and like, build up your self-esteem from all like the good things that you are, and you've really got it going. That's not where like true sense of like esteem comes from. A true sense of esteem doesn't come from like minimizing the reality of our brokenness or kind of, kind of like amping up some, something of our like the strengths God's given us. It actually comes from one understanding, we are created in the image of God. And as people created in the image of God, we are beloved, and there is a preciousness to our existence in this world, to every human being, every human being, whether they believe what you believe or I believe or not, every human being, as a human being, has a dignity and a value and a worth that's beautiful and radiant. And the reality is we have turned from God. We have turned from him in ways that are, that are significant, in ways that really the Bible even calls wicked. There's a wickedness to our, our attempts to kind of Find life and meaning away from the presence of God. So there's a, there's a brokenness to us that when you begin to realize what Christ has done for us, the blood he shed for us, then we can actually really embrace those realities as, as real things. Like, man, you're like confronting something about me. If you knew the depth of the brokenness in my heart, you wouldn't know a fraction of how broken and messed up and distorted my heart is. And there's the ability to be receptive to that because my sense of value and esteem isn't coming from like, no, I'm better than you think. It actually comes from like, you know what? I've turned from God in so many ways and remarkably, he loves me, he's forgiven me, he's washed me, he's cleansed me. And when I'm in the presence of God, I know that he actually sings over me and he sings over you and he delights over us. He's not disappointed in you. Do you hear me? That the God of the universe sees everything about you all of it. And he's not disappointed. He's not frustrated. He's not fed up. For those that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, who have trusted in Jesus, as we stand before God, we stand before God as precious stones, treasured possession of God himself. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. And so there's this, this breast piece, and there's some confusing things happening there that we don't have a lot of time to get into. Um, but kind of the fullness of the garments have these really remarkable kind of like um, kind of symbols in them. Some of the symbols are representing the fact that the priests are representing the people before God, but even the nature of the fabric is the same fabric that was sewn into the curtains in the temple, actually saying that the priests also represent the presence of God to the people. And this is the truth that was kind of articulated over and over and over again, that they had this kind of function of dual representation. They'd represent the people before God, but they'd also come out as those who have been walking in the presence of God, representing the weight of God's glory to the people. These are people that have been walking in the presence of God, and as they walk back out into the community, they're reflecting his character, reflecting his righteousness, reflecting his beauty. And so it's if you kind of like hone into the whole thing. At the heart of it are these two functions. They have access to the presence of God, and then they have this function 
of this dual representation, representing people to God and representing God to the people. So they have access to his presence, and then they have this sacred, glorious, weighty purpose, representing people before God and representing God to the people. So as we kind of like think about that, and you say, all right, so what's, why does that matter for life? Um, really, all of the images that are happening in Exodus are kind of symbols of images that are happening back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. That humanity was created, designed, every human in this world, we were designed to walk in the presence of God. That's what's happening in the Garden. The Garden of Eden is portrayed as a tabernacle, as a temple, where humanity is walking in his presence. It says in Genesis that God was walking among them in the cool of the day. And they're given this function to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And even the way it describes the work they're doing, they're called to work and to keep the Garden of Eden, which is the same terms described as the priests. And to kind of get out of, the, out of like the geeky details, what it's saying is like these human beings were designed to walk in the presence of God, to tend to the kind of place of God's presence, to like take care of and exercise dominion over the place of God's presence, which is the Garden of Eden, and then to spread the boundaries of that presence, to fill the whole earth with the presence of God as they're kind of having families and creating societies all the while, walking in the presence of God, reflecting God's presence in the way they live and they serve and they work, reflecting God's presence in the way they relate to their family and their neighbors, reflecting God's presence as they begin to create economy and begin to kind of build civilization as it continues to spread. The design of humanity was to build civilization exercising dominion in this world, to have families and to grow and to multiply and to do it all walking in his presence and radiating the weight of his glory, his beauty, reflecting his nature in this world by the way we live. That's the design. But Adam and Eve failed to do that. They actually turned from the design. They pushed away from the word of God and they began to try to forge their own way. The reason why it's significant is when Adam and Eve began to try to forge their own way, they're exiled from the Garden of Eden, and they inherited what the Bible calls death or separation from God. They were separated from the presence of God. And they're kind of, kind of exiled from Eden and begin trying to make civilization work. And so we still are fruitful, we still multiply, we still fill the earth, but we're not doing it as those who are walking in the presence of God and reflecting the weight of his glory, but we're doing it as those who are separated from the presence of God and doing it for our own name's sake and doing it for our own sense of significance and our own sense of worth and our own sense of value, which is the opposite of what we were created to do. And yet it's what most of us spend the vast majority of our life aiming for trying to build a life to kind of make something of ourselves for our own namesake, to feel significant or valuable or loved or accepted or whatever it might be. And this is the exact experience when you kind of read at the beginning of this passage, it talks about Aaron and his sons. It mentions as pairs Nadab and Abihu, and it mentions Eleazar and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu are going to show up again in the story in Leviticus 10, and they're going to do the same thing Adam and Eve did. They're going to push away from the wisdom of God, and they're going to try to forge their own way, even inside the tabernacle system, to kind of do something different. And instead of listening to the word of God and obeying the word of God, they did some bizarre stuff, tricky to understand even exactly what it was. But as a penalty for what they did, Nadab and Abihu are struck dead in the tabernacle because of what they had done to forsake the word of God. And it's the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve, and it's the same thing that's happened to all of us as human beings, that we've turned away from the presence of God, we've kind of taken our own purpose, instead of embracing our sacred purpose, we've created trivial, mundane, really idiotic, fragile, short-term sense of purpose in this world 
that's aimed at exalting ourselves, that's aimed at kind of like garnering affection from others, trying to find acceptance from others, trying to find comfort in the things that we can build and construct in our life, trying to find rest in the things that we can accomplish. And it just never works. It never, ever works. And so you feel weariness and anxiety and shame and guilt and loss and regret. And you feel those things. And you bear those things. And those things, even those feelings, are designed to point us to our need for a savior, a, a high priest, a better one. And that's exactly who Jesus came to be. He came to be a better high priest. We just read in the assurance of pardon earlier that this this high priest, this Jesus who comes in, he comes offering a better way. When Jesus went to the, kind of into this world in his incarnation, he's coming representing the character of God, representing the love of God, which is what a good high priest is supposed to do. He's representing the weight of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's glory. If you say, if you want to know what like God is like, you look at Jesus. And as you look at Jesus, you see his glory and his love and his righteousness and his justice and his kindness and his grace. You see all of it. And he's representing God to the people. And then as he represents God to the people, he also then takes the people on his shoulders and on his heart and he enters into the presence of God and he laid down his life on the cross, bearing the weight of our rebellion, bearing the weight of our sin, bearing the weight of our shame, not his own shame, not his own sin, not his own brokenness. He was perfect. He was without sin. And this high priest Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice so that the people that he's representing us could give, be given access to the presence of God. That his death was for us. Our guilt was upon his shoulders. And when he died, he paid our penalty, giving us access to the presence of God so that we as human beings who have turned from him don't have to work our way back into favor with God. We don't have to earn our way into acceptance with God. We can embrace our mistakes. We can embrace our sin. We can embrace our shame. We can embrace our weakness. And we can come near to Jesus and experience freedom and forgiveness and love and cleansing, and grace, and we can be given access to the presence of God, which is what you were designed for, to walk in his presence, to know him, to walk with him, to enjoy his glory, that he's here, that tonight, as you lay your head on your pillow tonight, and you feel lonely because you're new to the city and you haven't connected with anybody, you feel regret over the mistakes you've made in life, and you feel like, how can I ever undo the things that have happened? It's too much. You feel shame over something that's happened. You feel anxiety over all that's on your plate. You feel overwhelmed. You feel apathetic or this malaise in life that's settling in, the sense of just like kind of depression that begins to weigh on you or an indifference. As you feel those things, you have access to the God of the universe, to talk to him, to kind of Come to him with all of that and say, here's where I am. Here's what I feel. And that access isn't because you've been crushing it at life. It's not because you've been doing great or you went to church today. That access has been granted to you through the grace of God in Jesus, your high priest, who tore that veil, giving you access to his presence. You can talk to him about that. When you leave here tonight and we send you, you go out of this place with him. We stay at the end of the service and may the God of peace be with you. And you say, and also with you. And what we're saying, God is with us. He's really with us. And that we are called not just to look to Jesus as a high priest, but then as he gives us his own spirit, he calls us his kingdom of priests. He's created us to be 
what 1 Peter 2 says, a royal priesthood. A community of people that walk in his presence, like access to his presence. One high priest, one time a year, enters into the Holy of Holies. We, as a kingdom of priests, get to walk with him every single day. Every single day. And all the rituals they perform to purify themselves, we just look to Jesus who did it all. He shed his blood for us to purify us for himself. And we get to walk with Jesus every single day. And we get to bear the weight of his glory as we walk back into this world, showing the world what God's presence is like. Not by cowering under the kind of rolling tides of secularism, but by standing with a sense of security that the God of the universe is on the move. He's building his kingdom. The gospel is moving forward. Lives are being transformed. And we have this good news, this glorious news that Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He is the life. There's access to the God who created you. There's reconciliation. There's relationship available for the world that's longing and hungry and desperate and needy. And we bear this kind of a glorious weight Not a burdensome weight, but a weight of glory, a kind of like beautiful, sacred task to kind of represent the character of God in this world. And I think there's a beauty to this reality that I lose sight of all the time. So the question I've been asking as I think about this passage for us is first this. What does it mean to be moving from rhythms in your life that maintain an absence from God or kind of leads you to think that God's not with you or leads you to not remember that God is, is with you? Like, what are the rhythms of life that are kind of leading you away from attentiveness to the presence of God? And what do it mean to reorient your rhythms to actually create space in your life to pay attention to and to draw near to the presence of God? I want to say this, like, unequivocally. Whether you feel, if you're a child of God, if you feel like you're close to him or don't feel like you're close to him, that doesn't change the fact that he's with you. Uh, Jesus promised, I'll be with you all the time. Not, I'll be with you all the time so long as you're really feeling it, you know, um, which I'm thankful for. Because it means in the midst of the, the dark valleys and, and the shame and the re- regrets and the apathy and the seasons where it just feels like life just feels hard uh, or we're just distracted. He's not abandoning us. He's not run away from us. He's not saying, get your stuff together and I'll come back. He's right there. The question is, will you create rhythms to pay attention to his presence? And to marvel at this access we have to his presence. And it's just hard for me, the more I think about this, like, I just feel like an idiot, a total idiot, that I live so much of my life forgetting about the fact that the God of the universe is with me. And I don't feel like an idiot in shame. I feel like an idiot, like, God, help me reorient my life to walk with you. Because you're here. Help me to be attentive to the fact that you're here now and you're going to be here with me tonight and tomorrow morning and as I talk to my wife and hang out with my kids and as I talk to my neighbors and my coworkers and the people at my kids' school as I engage in this world with my family and my friends, you are with me. So creating rhythms to attend to the presence of God. And secondly, to move from trivial pursuits in life towards embracing your sacred purpose. And this is, this is, and I want to, I want to end here um, because this has just been, yeah, convicting for me. Um, there's a book called The Great Divorce by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, I say a guy named C.S. Lewis as if I don't quote him like every other week at least. Um, 
There's a guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, so C.S. Lewis uh, was a phenomenal Christian thinker and writer, author. Um, and he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which is really a kind of allegory, um, a kind of metaphor, communicating this, this, this powerful reality that to walk in the presence of God and to embrace the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, not on the basis of all the great things you've done, but because of Jesus, actually leads to this kind of, this, this real life. It's true life. It's this real solid life. Whereas to press away from the reign of God, to press away from his love, leads to this kind of ghostly, kind of like vaporish life. And so the whole image, and there's a lot, there's a lot more going on to it. It's bizarre. It's weird. Like the first chapter, if you start reading it, it is phenomenal. The first chapter, you're going to be like, what? It's happening right now. So it's this kind of ghostly experience. All these people that have turned from the reign of God, and they live in this ghostly town. This goes on forever and ever and ever. It's this kind of unmitigated misery where people are doing all the things they want to do, and it's miserable. They're doing everything they want to do. They want to be there, and it's miserable. But some people are given this access to a bus, and the bus takes off, and they're going to go visit this kind of in-between land. And the bus goes through a weird crack in the ground, and all of a sudden that crack in the ground goes up, and it's, anyway, weird stuff. They show up in this other kind of like area of the universe, and it is radiant, and it is solid, and it is stable. Like to the ghosts who didn't realize that they were ghostly, like the grass feels like, painfully hard, painfully solid, like to walk on the grass itself hurts because of how solid the grass is. And they're kind of like walking around and like to, one of them like goes in a river and the river is so solid, it's so real, it's so thick that it's like, it'd be like just getting kind of like hit by a tidal wave of concrete or something. Like it's that much more solid than them. And in this kind of realm, these other humans who have been given access to the presence of God and have trusted in God, and this is, and all this is happening in theory on the other side of death, um, they're given access to come to their friends, their beloved ones, like one person from the heavenly city is coming to one of their ghostly friends, and it's kind of engaging in these conversations. And these people coming from the heavenly city are solid. They're solid people, like thick with, with glory, and with radiance, they're made for glory and for beauty, and they're coming in, they're interacting with their ghostly friends, like pleading with their ghostly friends to turn from the things in their life that are leading them away from the presence of God and say, turn from those things. All that you want, all that you're ultimately looking for is found more significantly in the presence of God. And you're settling for these little shadows, like Lewis will say in another place. You're settling for making mud pies in a slum when this holiday at sea is offered for you. Like there's a glorious thing offered for you and you're settling in these shallow, superficial, kind of shadowy, ghostly experiences that are leading to this brokenness and this misery. And they're pleading with these people to come kind of further up and further in, as it were, towards the presence of God, to actually be made whole, to experience life to the full, to experience the fullness of life in the presence of God. And, and, I, say, and I say that, kind of bring that image, because I've just been thinking as priests in this world, what would it mean to understand, like, as you walk in the presence of God, and as you pay attention to his presence, he, like, makes you more solid, more, like, thick with glory and with radiance and with love and with not superiority, but actually humility and honesty and kindness and a tenderness and a love for justice and a righteousness and a peace and a restedness that 
that gives you kind of a thicker, more solid existence in this world, an existence that's full of beauty and glory in the world. And as people that bear the beauty and the glory as those who have been given access to God, those that are walking with God, you are this beautiful representation of God in the world. And so what, what would it mean for you this week? What would it mean for you this week to think about all the ordinary things that God's called you to do and just invest them with sacred purpose as you go to work tomorrow, like sacred purpose to your work, beautiful purpose that you get to go do the things pr- providing goods and services or whatever they are, but doing them because like you get to love humanity by providing these goods and services. And everybody's like, man, that, that person at work, like they really... They're really like passionate about this. And you're like, yeah, because we get to like serve humanity by pr- providing these things and creating these things. And I get to love people and kind of work towards the common good. And the way you interact with your coworkers, the way you interact with your roommates or your classmates or your family or the people you're going to interact with, you get to interact with this sacred purpose to show the character of God, to show the presence of God, to show the love of God, to show the forgiveness of God, to show the humility of God, the meekness of God, by the way you engage with others in the world. And if you live that kind of priestly life in this world, uh, Peter says you better be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that's in you. Because people don't see that often. Whereas when we kind of embrace the kind of ghostly experience and kind of cower under kind of Disney company and all that it is, and we just feel like a beleaguered group of people like trying to kind of insecurely like make a Christianity work in the midst of Disneyland, just like, hold on. God is with us. His kingdom is real. His mission is real. The future of this world is real. The return of Christ is real. And our mission to function as his priests, his representatives in this world is real. And to embrace the sacred purpose of your life as solid people, the people that the world needs. The world needs a kingdom of priests that are saying, look at the glory of God. Follow me to the glory of God. I will show you the way to Jesus. He is the way to life. I want you to come with me and that we would, as it were, kind of bear the the responsibility for the world, even as we plead with God, taking the world on our shoulders and saying, God, would you pour out your grace on my friends and pour out your grace on my family and as good priests that we would intercede for the people around us saying, God, would you show yourself and reveal yourself to the city? Would you flood the city with your glory? Would you help people to know you and turn to you and turn from these things that are crushing humanity? God, would you, would you create a movement of the gospel and a revival in this place that this world would know your glory and walk with you like we were designed to do? Um, this is our sacred purpose as a kingdom of priests. And it is a glorious, beautiful, and weighty purpose God's given us. And so what I want to do this evening, I want to close in prayer and even just create a moment of space for you to think, what does this mean for your life? What does this mean for your life tonight and tomorrow? What if everything God's called you to do this week, you saw through the lens of this like really weighty, beautiful, sacred purpose? What might God do with a group of people dedicated to embracing our role in the world with that sort of lens. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we ask right now for help. Um, Would you even speak into the life of people? Maybe you're bringing specific people to mind, somebody that we could show your love to, your kindness to, that we could encourage. Um, If there are areas where we've been embracing kind of trivial shallow um, approach to life? Would you 
free us from that, not for a burdensome, boring existence, but that we experience the kind of solidity of what it means to be your people in this world, that there'd be a, a glory and a beauty and a radiance to our life. Help us where we feel like we need to strive. Would you free us from that, that these things happen by the power of your spirit as your spirit produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and faithfulness, even self-control in this world. Help us to be people that just give evidence to the reality of your presence in this world. I encourage you even for a moment just to ask God, God, is there somebody that you would call me to, to show your love to, to encourage? Is there something you want me to turn from? Is there a rhythm that you want me to incorporate in life to remind myself of this sacred calling and the reality of your presence?